We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I'd like you to look at this text that Charles read to you here in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse uh, 14 and following. Let me preface it with this. When I was young, there was a, a very providential thing. That, oh, incidentally, if y'all hear some crackling as I preach along here, that's not my joints, okay? That is our PA system, whatever it is, is like 17 years old. We're about to get it fixed. So if I tell you that, I don't get self-conscious. You may hear some crackling, okay? With that in mind, back when I was young, I had an uncle named Uncle Ray Bible, and uh, his wife was my father's sister, Aunt Jimmy. And he was a businessman in Waco, and he came over to our house once when I I was in grade school, sixth grade, fifth grade. And he sat down to say that he had been to a breakfast and Ronnie Goodwin had spoken. Now, if you were a kid from Waco in the 1960s, early 60s, uh, Ronnie Goodwin was a Baylor University uh, running back from Odessa Permium. Ronnie Goodwin, Ronnie Bull, Bobby Ply, Ronnie Stanley, these were names that, uh, that you just, when you were a kid, you just worshipped these guys. They were Baylor football players. And he, what he told us about was that Ronnie Stanley, uh, uh, who did I say? Ronnie Goodwin, yeah. Ronnie Stanley was a quarterback. But this is Ronnie Goodwin, the running back. And Ronnie Goodwin spoke. And um, Uncle Ray, and I'm leaning forward, you heard Ronnie Goodwin? Did you touch him? Did you see him? Is he corporeal? Does he have a real body? I didn't say that, but I was thinking. He said, yeah. And he said, he talked about getting alone with God. And I said, Really? And I just, I said, what does he do? He said, every day he would go off by himself and he would spend time with God. And uh, I was just a little fellow, but immediately after that, I took off down the street, went into an alley and got on a fence. I just sat there, me and God having communion. I don't know what you were supposed to say or do, but I was there with God. Okay. What I was thinking about was how stupid I felt out in that alley sitting on a fence, really. But I spent time with God. And that was the first time that that idea that God is somebody that you have a devotional life with. The Bible says of Christ, in the early morning when it was still dark, he arose, departed, went out to a lonely place, and there he was praying. The idea of a devotional life. Generally, when a person gives their Christian testimony, they'll talk about when they came to the Lord, and then when they understood that it's a relationship And if there's a second blessing, that is it. It's not when you get more of God, it's when God gets all of you and you are alone with him and vulnerable to him, and you enjoy the illumination of the revealed word. Um, Have y'all ever heard of what is called the Second Reformation? The, The Reformation from Luther on, 1517 on, was a return and a recovery of the idea of salvation by faith in Christ, by his grace alone. We had added a bunch of stuff to it through the latter half of the Middle Ages to where it was the faith in Christ plus all the works you did to get out of purgatory. And it, it became a business. Luther recovered the idea of salvation. Justification is by faith alone and the grace alone offer of Christ alone. Amen? That's the foundation of Christianity, and it was the recovery of the Reformation. But the Reformation tended to get dry and dusty because as it began to break up into what were called denominations, uh, 
in all the areas that you would have Lutherans, Presbyterians, Reformed, Anglicans, uh, you would have uh, Catholics, and they would all have their churches, and they generally were the pastors arguing their points, and they became very dry and very doctrinaire, and they just lost the heart. And so what happened through the 1500s, started in Germany with a guy named uh, Philip Spiner, that was a, a professor at, a, at Strasbourg, and then a fellow named um, August Frank, there was a professor at a university called Halle, H-A-L-L-E, Halle in Germany, that became the center of the Reformation. Like Wittenberg was to justification, Halle became to uh, what was called pietism. And what they, they, that Spiner and Frank and a guy named Zinzendorf, who was the discipler and mentor to a guy named John Wesley, who was friends to John, uh, to uh, George Whitfield who came over here and led the first great awakening in our country, and the Puritans that came over uh, before that. And so these guys were foundational to what was called pietism. And essentially, they started doing something that was called, you're ready, it was revolutionary for their day, it was called a quiet time, that everybody would get their Bible. Do you think that it's providential that Luther and Gutenberg were almost contemporaries? that Luther said there's an individual priesthood of all Christians to know God personally. And then Gutenberg turned it out to where everybody could have a Bible, and then you could have it in your own tongue. And so men began to, and women began to, have Bible studies. August Frank started what were called home groups, where you would meet in homes. And you were, they were called small groups. It was a church within a church. And you would do what was called, you're ready, it was revolutionary, it was called scripture memory. You'd memorize the Bible, and you would have your quiet times, and you would share in open sharing and communion what God was doing in your life. Uh, you began to have, and this was revolutionary, it was called prayer request. Do you have a need in your life? And they would pray. They would pray out loud, sometimes conversationally. He would pray, she would, and they would just move around in prayer. And they also believed, you're ready for this, that simply being a Presbyterian uh, uh, a whatever, a Anabaptist, that didn't save you. You had to have a personal experience of faith and to be born again. Does that sound familiar? Well, these are all things. And also they started doing what was called personal witnessing of sharing what was called your testimony. And then a guy named Zinzendorf started marketing it around the world to where usually there were English colonies of people and then to the, the pagans down in the... Uh, the islands of Haiti and the like, and uh, they began doing what was called mission work. Not simply establishing a monastery, but bringing people to faith. And so you're probably saying to yourself, that sounds very American. It is. America in God's providence caught the wave of pietism, and, the, and which means an individual relationship with God that has been the foundation of Protestantism really since the, the 18th century. And that's the one that you and I most recognize. Well, that started because a bunch of guys said, it's not just enough to be justified and be part of the church, to baptize your kids and have a catechism. You've got to know God, that there's more to Christianity than simply being saved. You have a devotional life. Isn't that good? And that's what spread like wildfire. A guy named Wesley picked it up, emulated what Zinzendorf was doing, and began a denomination that was the largest denomination in the United States in the 1800s, 
They had their own method, and they were called Methodists. Yeah. And so that was basically having a quiet time. That was the method. Well, with that in mind, in chapter 10, we're going to talk here about a devotional life. Okay? He simply says this in verse uh, 13. On the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found. Discernment is the ability to make moral decisions independently. It's having the taste of what is right and what is wrong, to be guided by the enlightened mind of God that comes by the rebirth, to know right and wrong. And this discretion is found in verse 13 on the lips or on the mouth. Whenever the Bible we use that in the Old Testament, it's talking about the biblical obedience that you have to the Word of God. It goes like this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You'll meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. Then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. At the temptation, you saw in Christ the recital of God's Word. Turn these stones into bread. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's from the book of Deuteronomy. Throw yourself down and the angels will pick you up. You don't have to go through all of this humiliation of the incarnation. We'll recognize you now as the Messiah. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Worship me and I'll give these kingdoms. You don't have to go through all of this, all of this cross stuff. Uh, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 8. I remember Howard Hendricks asking us at cemetery, cemetery, <laughs> Sigmund, thank you, uh, seminary. He said, uh, how many of you, if Satan personally confronted you, could defend yourself with your scripture memory from the book of Deuteronomy? Jesus could go to Deuteronomy. I told you last week, there's 1,934 verses attributed to Christ, 179 of them are Old Testament quotations. 8% of his speech was Bible. The Bible says he continued in subjection to his parents and he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And so that's what it means that the discerning has on his lips the word of God. When you poke him, Bible comes out. It guides his life. And this tells us some very countercultural things. It tells us, number one, that there is right and wrong. Amen. Is that under discussion today? Yeah. And secondly, right and wrong is not what you personally determine right and wrong as being. That man is judged by a standard outside of him. There is wisdom, and it does not originate in you and I. And then thirdly, it, it originates in God the Creator because it is part of His very nature of what is right. Is that under discussion today? Man does not like anyone outside of him telling him what he ought to do. Man is a perennial teenager. Okay. And then fourthly, that this God makes known from Himself what is right and it is found in a book called the Law and the Prophets and fulfilled in the New Testament that was given to one solitary nation of which God said, in you and your seed shall the nations be blessed. Question, what's the nation? 
Israel. What's the book? The Bible. And so, let me show you something here, a little blessed digression. Keep your finger right there and go to Romans chapter 2, where Paul talks about the blessedness of being a Jew. He was telling you that the law does not save you. People were saying, you're condescending upon Israel. He said, no, Israel never was to believe that the law could save them. The law made you savable by showing you your sin and pointing you to the cross. And in chapter 2 and verse 17, watch this. Paul says in 2.17, if you bear the name Jew, Jew is a short term for Judah that means the praise of God. To be a Jew means that you are uh, of a people that is to the praise of the infinite personal God. How many nations on the earth had as their God the infinite personal God of creation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? There was only one, and that is Israel. And then the, the nations that came forth from them that were blessed by them. But Israel was the sole nation. Jesus said, salvation is of the Jew. Psalm 147, thou hast given to us thy law and statutes, thou hast dealt with no other nation, thus the uniqueness of the Jew. And so if you bear the name Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God, the Jew could always boast or brag or rejoice and that his greatest possession was not the Grand Tetons, it was not the Colorado River, it was not Mount Everest, but it was God. We know who God is. That's why if you take all of the nations and you push them together, Israel is always dead center. God put them right in the center of the world. Book of Ezekiel calls Israel the navel of the earth. When you see a Jew, just say, you are the belly button. Okay, because that's exactly what it means. They're the heart of the earth. And so, if you bear this name and you've got a Bible and you brag that you know who God is, and then in verse 18, as a result, you don't only own a Bible, you can know his will. You can know intellectually what is discretion. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't murder and do these things. Don't abuse the orphan, the widow. There are 613 commands in the Old Testament, most of them moral commands. They all come out of loving God and loving your neighbor. They're all fulfilled in one word, love. And so that the Jew had more direction that he, that he cared for. So he could know right and wrong. And then he could literally, in verse 18, test or approve the things that the Greek says differ, being instructed out of the law. That is wrong conduct. That is right conduct. If you ever do any counseling, you have to say sometimes, I've had to do it in when talking to guys when he would say something to his wife. And I would say, whoa, 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 whoa. Madam, how do you feel right now? Demeaned, angry, murderous, condescended upon. Yeah, you just feel just like hopping in bed with this guy, don't you? No. And I turned to the guy, Cletus. Did you realize that you did that? Did what? And you've been doing it since when? 1967. Okay, you've been doing it that long. That's why you got some problems. You have 
olfactory fatigue. That's where you can't smell yourself anymore. You can't make a moral decision. You better wake up, friend. You ever had that conversation? I see some elbows going out there. Verse 18, you can differentiate. You don't have to walk through life and shoot your, your foot off. You can think intelligently. And then in verse 19, you can then turn around and be a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish and a teacher of the babes. You can take the law that you possess, that you read and you apply, and you can turn around and fulfill the Abrahamic covenant in your seed shall the nations be blessed. You can make your life count. You know what I would say? That to the men who understood all of this and its fulfillment in Christ, you can actually say to those men, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the full knowledge of God, and teach them to obey what I taught you to obey. And these guys can impact the, next, the world for the next 20 centuries. Amen? Yes. And so that is what, how Paul saw the Bible. It's not something that you simply have. Matter of fact, during the Reformation, as it would get to going in different churches, they would have one Bible called the Great Bible that England produced. Uh, and you would uh, chain it to the pulpit so nobody could steal it because it was the most valuable thing in your possession was that Bible. And people would go up to the church at all hours, you never locked the church, and go in and take paper and they would copy what they could, take it home and that was their Bible to read it. That's how precious it was. Think of it like this, in the temple of God, the tabernacle of God, uh, whenever it was built under Moses, under Solomon, you had beautiful tapestry, beautiful work in linen, you had gold, you had bronze, you had all of the, the massive gold that Solomon laid down. You went to the inner part of it, the holy place, and then to the holy place, the holy holies. And you got in there, and there was an ark of gold. If you pulled back the lid, you saw something that was the most precious thing in the nation. What was it made of? Gold? Bronze? Silver? What was it made of? Stone. What was it? Bible, the law of God with his hand. That was the most precious thing. And so Paul says, this is the most precious thing you have. Question, you've, you've got to hear a, a, a train coming because it's going to be dangerous. Okay. That's amazing. Is it possible to be rich, famous, handsome, healthy, and all the rest and ruin your life if you don't have Verse 13, uh, verse 13, on the lips of the discerning, that is called wisdom. But in verse 13, the rod is for the back of him who lacks discretion. Or literally, verse 13, the Hebrew says, the one who lacks heart, he doesn't know God. If you get a guy or a girl that is morally clueless, that has no wheel and no rudder for making decisions, uh, the only way they will be instructed is by the rod. Now in Israel, 
That was your means of justice. They didn't put you in jail in Israel. They caned you. Hallelujah. I believe in it. Okay. They simply would put stripes on you, and they didn't have to give you three hots and a cot for years. You just got beaten. As a matter of fact, it says there was a limit to the beating. Anybody remember from the book of Exodus how many stripes you could lay on a man? Actually, it's 40, but 39. They would do 39 in case you miscounted. And so Paul said, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. And so the guy that will not obey the law of God, what's waiting on you is a good caning. Y'all remember that guy from America that's over in China that keyed a couple of uh, automobiles? The Chinese didn't mess with him. They just caned him. <laughs> Let's move on, okay? And so that's what's waiting on you. In other words, let me summarize it. You can learn by precepts, or you can learn by pain. But you will learn. Which way would you like? Precepts. Precepts get you a priori. You never have to pay the tuition on stupidity. You can avoid it. Pain is a posteriori. It's after the fact, and you get your posteriori beaten, okay? And so it's best when you see young guys, I say, I went through a lot of stupidity. You don't have to pay my tuition on the course. Learn your Bible uh, and be like Christ where the, the gracious words are falling from your lips and you're in favor with God and men and or you're like John the Baptist where people talk, what kind of child will this one be? You ever do that when you get around a kid? Like some, maybe some of these kids, they, they love the Lord, they follow their parents, they're obedient, and you just look at them and think, boy, what is this kid going to accomplish? But there's other ones, you say, fire drill, all right? Run, run fast. And so, give you a good example. Charles Manson. Y'all with me? Not a lot of kids named Manson. This guy died at 83. He was in prison, isolated for the last 40 years of his life for those murders. So from 43 to 83, he was in prison. He died at 83. And so before he went into prison, he had 40 years prior. Do you know how many of those prior 40 years were spent in prisons and reform schools and jails? 20. He spent 60 out of 80 some odd years in jail. That's three quarters of his life that he spent in prison. So, Charles, what could you have been? Do you know that Charles Manson was barely literate and he had 109 IQ? He, what could he have been? We don't know. Until the end of his life, he would justify his sin. And so, and what did he get to be? A leader of a whole group of people out in California. Isn't that amazing? So, Charles, when are you going to learn? My son's in the Fort Worth PD. And he says, a lot of times when you arrest people, you find out after a while that you know them. I asked him, what percentage of people ended up being arrested? He said, 13%. 
He said 87% of the people in our country wouldn't need policemen because, I'm not talking about defunding right here, but he said 87% don't need them because they have an inner moral compass. He said 13% are the jackals and the hyenas and the dingoes that prowl around. And John said to me, he said, we ought to just take a backhoe and dig a ditch and I'll just leave it right there. Okay. <laughs> because that was way. But he said, a lot of times I'll go and he said, we'll see a guy and we got to arrest him. And you go, yeah, I know him. I know where he lives. I know his, his parents live right over here. We go get him. And he'll turn to the guy, and often he has said, as a Christian cop, he'll turn around and say, you know, this is the sixth time I've arrested you. Uh, you going to jail is like a reunion. And he said to him, has it ever occurred to you, you ought to change professions? You're not a real good criminal. And he said that, he said, they, he, John told me that the reason that guys love to be criminals is twofold, and it's like crack cocaine to the soul that just is a, a super high. They love not having authority. I love being free from anybody telling me what I have to do. I can do what I want. And they love being free from any responsibility. I don't have to take care of a wife, kids, pay taxes. I can do anything, and I'm accountable to nobody. He said it is like straight cocaine to the soul. Before you die and go to hell. But he said basically that's what it is, the sense of being free. And the thing is, they are all captives of sin and the destruction of their own lives. He said if nobody told me about Satan, I would believe him anyway. And so, let's continue in our encouragement here. In verse 14, therefore, what do wise men do? Wise men, what's your verb? Store up. Wise guys are always reading, always learning, always obeying. They don't just quit and say the Bible. Yeah, I read it. No, they read it continually and they collect wisdom. Uh, keep looking here. The wise man stores knowledge Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Spurgeon said, when you are cut, you should bleed bibline to where you can palm your Bible, to where somebody can say Deuteronomy, and you've got a pretty decent understanding. They can say Jude, the Acts of the Apostates, yeah. Second Peter, yeah, the false teachers. Romans, the constructs of justification and sanctification. Yes, revelation. I can, I can think through it. And you only get that by the Bible percolating. It just continually runs through you because you have a time that you withdraw. And you spend time, maybe it's in the morning, maybe it's in the evening where it's quiet, but you spend time with God. And it's like an archaeological dig when you do an archaeological dig, you don't bring out a backhoe. You get a whisk broom, and you go down an eighth of an inch, then a quarter of an inch, then three quarters, and you just go on down until you see a time and a place that you've never seen before. But God's rigged it that you have to spend time with Him. That's the coin of the realm, is hunger and discipline and perseverance. Those aren't gifts. That is the attitude of a human that recognizes what a human is. 
Adam, before you get Eve or before you get a job, you get God. Eve, before you get Adam or before you get a job, you get God. You can't live before you know God. Isn't that something? Here's a great quote for you. I got it from my psychiatrist. Let me explain that. When I went through the depression, I went through about 15, 20 years ago, I went to a guy and I said, educate me on this. And he said, let me give you the insight. He's a Christian guy, taught at Harvard, but he said this. He said, when Adam and Eve and humans were made, they were not under a watch, they were under a solar clock. When the clock, when the sun came up, now you could see and you could go to work. And you would work, and as the sun started going down, you quit. And your body would produce melatonin and makes you sleep. And you would go home and take your bath or whatever you did, and you would sit before Edison and Henry Ford and Rockefeller, before you had uh, electrical light and cars and gasoline. Everything was quiet. Do you all remember 9-11? Remember how quiet it was? No one was flying. Nobody was driving. It was just quiet. It's like the wind didn't even blow. It was just quiet. And so he said, man was meant to go to his house and the family would eat. And then it's like 630 until nine or 10. And you have dead silence. And a man would get on the front porch and file down his hoe or his uh, uh, furrow and the woman would darn socks and they would talk. The kids would play within the gl ambient glow of uh, kerosene. Somebody might come down the, the road and bring a Jew's harp or a, a mandolin and you would sing. And then it was 8.30 and you would sit longer. And that's when books became so precious. He said, the deal about Lincoln walking three miles to get a book, he said, everybody did that because that was the most precious thing you had was Moby Dick or Don Quixote or your Bible and you read stuff. You didn't sit and do this in front of a silent family over it, you know, whatever. You talked. My grandson at his school, he's 13, he says, the, when you think of the lunchroom, what do you think of? Chaos. Now they're quiet. You know why they're quiet? Because nobody talks. Nobody talks. My grandson just stood one time and go, would anyone like to talk? <laughs> what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. And so this psychiatrist said to me, that's how a human is meant to be. But he said with the internal combustion engine with artificial light and with the ability to go, you now have schedules and you now have night life and your soul never rests. He said, did you notice what I drive in the front of this place? I said, yeah, a Bentley. He said, there's a reason. I said, what's that? Guys like you. He said, I have 40 appointments a day, 15 minutes a pop to get guys to back up and to start living instead of serving their own machine. Because after a while, you can't take it and you'll go down. He said, Western civilization 
mass produces anxiety and depression. He said, you know who incidentally in one survey is said to be the happiest people on earth? The Amish. The Amish. Because they rest. They have family. They have moral discretion. They know how to get to heaven. And they don't shave. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so they're the happiest people on earth. I don't know. Let me show you something else. The idea is don't follow verse 14 with the mouth of the foolish ruin is at hand. He doesn't know Bible. He goes by what he feels and he's one step away from catastrophe. The reason he doesn't know the Bible is because he knows everything. He doesn't have to spend time with God because he's a genius. Give him time and what he believes is going to cave in a sinkhole. So don't follow these guys. Let me show you something. Look at Isaiah 50. In Isaiah, you have what are called the servants' songs. Uh, where's Isaiah? Here he is. Isaiah 50, you have the servants' songs. There's like, I think four of them or six of them, I can't remember. But they are songs of the capital S, Servant. The coming Messiah who is the servant of God that is the ideal human and the ideal Jew that obeys God to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Isaiah, that the word Isaiah means the salvation of God. It looks to this man. The most famous of the servant songs is Isaiah 53. And so in Isaiah 50, just notice this. In verse 1, he speaks to Israel. Where's the certificate of divorce that I sent your mother away? Answer, there isn't one. To whom are your creditors that I sell you? The answer, to nobody. You were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions. Your mother was sent away. I didn't break my covenant with you. Like Gomer to Hosea, you broke your covenant with me. You're the problem. God says, it's not me. You ever heard this proverb? A fool subverts his own way and his heart rages against God. Well, in verse 2, why was there no man when I came? When I called, there was none to answer. I sent the prophets to you, and you wouldn't listen to them. Now, is my hand so short it can't ransom, or my power to deliver? And in the rest of verse 2 and 3, it looks at the Red Sea crossing. I haven't changed. I'm the God who can covenantally take care of my people, but you have You've turned away from me. He says in verse 4, somebody now speaks up. The Lord God has given me, capital M, the tongue of disciples. Who is this person that is speaking in contrast to a disobedient nation as the ideal Jew? It is Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, the anticipation of the Messiah. He said, God gave me the tongue of disciples. In verse 2, I called and nobody answered. Here, the, the servant of the Lord says, I answered. In the early morning, it was still dark. I arose, went out to a lonely place. I grew in wisdom and in stature. 8% of my speech is Bible. I'm totally different. That I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. I'll use my tongue to be loving and to be a blessing. To, to know the Bible, obey God, and sustain the weary one is the essence of the Abrahamic covenant. 
In your seed will the nations be blessed. Go make disciples, teaching them to obey what you, I've taught you. This is the classic human being. Do we know his name at this point? We don't. We know his nickname, Emmanuel, which means God with us, the incarnation. Well, he awakens me morning by morning. He has awakened my ear to listen. He has dug my ear or opened it. Remember often in the Bible when Christ would restore hearing to a man, he would put his fingers in his ears and pull them out, and he would say, Ifatha, be opened. You can now hear who God is. This man can hear God. And I was not disobedient, and I didn't turn back, because he had to be obedient in a very contradictory culture. It was a culture that he said, I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I didn't cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Who was the man that we know that got tried for his own righteousness and got spit on, his beard plucked out, and his back laid open? Jesus, the ideal human. And in verse 7, but God helps me, so I am not disgraced. Even though the whole world is set against me, even though my 12 will run and my brothers forsake me, I will stay true. And in verse 7, he helps me. Where did Christ go before he died? He went to Gethsemane and he poured out his soul to God and the angels of God came and ministered to him. And so in verse 7, therefore I am not disgraced and I've set my face like flint. If you have a cross reference, you ought to have a reference to the gospel of Luke where it says Christ set his face to Jerusalem and his apostles were amazed at the courage of this man. I will not turn away from the persecution that is mine. And in verse eight, uh, 7, I will not be ashamed because he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let's stand up to each other. This man, though he was persecuted and killed for right, God would stand with him and vindicate him. And that is why we have a cross at the back of our church and a cross on the steeple of a man who did the right thing and died, and God has made him the center point of the greatest civilization of all time. So you're watching this being fulfilled as we speak, that 4,000 people came together this Sunday to close our eyes and adore this person and sing to him, like Isaiah said in 700 B.C. And so he says, God's going to defend me. You know how God can vindicated him? The Bible says he was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. It was impossible for death to hold him. And so, verse 9, God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? They'll wear out like a garment. It's going to take a long time for a garment to wear out. The Messiah is saying, people are going to hate me, the one that God loves. They're going to hate me for a long time. How long has the world rejected this message? 20 centuries they have rejected it. Well, in verse 10, but who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant? God hath commanded men everywhere to repent, Paul said, having fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man, having furnished proof and that he has raised him from the dead. And so you have a world that hates him, 
But who is the one that will obey his voice? Christ said, he that believeth in me hath eternal life. He that believeth not, the wrath of God abides on him. Well, all you've got to know in verse 10 is that you walk in darkness and you have no light. If you are willing to admit that you are not the final standard of truth and that you are walking in darkness and you need God, I know that's hard to believe. We who could not write our name in longhand till we were in the second grade that we would actually need God, but to a human being that walks in darkness and has no light, if he will, the next sentence, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Verse 10 or 11, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, that's when you don't want the light of Christ. Who in the Bible is called the light of the world? that shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. It is Christ. And so in verse 11, all of you who don't want him, but you make your own fire, you encircle yourselves with firebrands, meaning I don't want God, but I will be a secular humanist and I will have my own. I'll be an enlightenment humanist. I'll be a Renaissance humanist. I will be an atheist. I will be a Darwinian. I will be a communist. I will be a Marxist. I will be a Nazi. I will be woke and I will determine within myself what is final truth. Will you go ahead, God said, and you light your fire and you circle yourself with your flames, your little nice, neat circle that you think is going to work. And what's going to happen in verse 11? You walk in the light of your fire and among the brands you've set ablaze and this you'll have from my hand. You will lie down in, what's your last word? Torment. You that reject God and have your own little flame around you, it's going to set you on fire. And then you're going to lie down and die. And then the torment begins because you're going to hell. And so this is what God says happens when you don't receive the light of God and you invent your own. Is this any way applicable to our culture? that has invented its own way. Since the creation of the world, his invisible power, internal nature, and divine Godhead have been clearly seen, understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For since the creation of the world, he has been made known. And they, beca they became foolish in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, bird, four-footed animals, and snakes. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies would be degraded among them. For the men exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural and burned in their desire towards each other, men in men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Therefore, wrath has come upon them to the utmost. God said, this is what the culture will happen when they reject the light of God. They're going to implode. Where there is no absolute to judge society, society is absolute, which is no problem if you have perfect humans. But if you don't, there's hell to pay. And so that's from the 7th century BC. You better obey the servant of God. 
Because when you put a substitute in his place, you're going to set yourself on fire. Go back here to chapter 10. And he says in verse 15, it's an analogy. A rich man's wealth is his fortress. Physically, you can have physical life that is happier if you have money. Because it will pay your retirement. It'll pay your your Medicare, it'll do, do all, it'll take care of you. What do we always say? Uh, you make some money, save it for a rainy day. There's going to be times you're going to need that money. So money can be a comfort in physical life. Poverty in verse 14 or 15, the ruin of the poor is their poverty. They have nothing to fall back on. So it's good to store up money when I was a young Christian, a guy told me, he said, when you make money, pay the Lord first, pay your bills second, and pay yourself third. Put some in savings. Get your piggy bank and start paying yourself. The rest, Dr. Pepper and Snickers and enjoy life. Okay. But always have a, you think that's, is that a good deal, Kim? Have you a little bit so that you can not be afraid of the future. So save. But in verse 16, in spiritual life, the wages of the righteous is life. The way that you find true life, spiritual life, is by being wise and being righteous. It all substantiates verse uh, 14, that wise men store up knowledge. Just like a rich guy stores money, a wise man stores knowledge. Because he knows there's going to be a day coming that he's going to need it. How much do you take with you when you die? Nothing. How much do you live behind for your children to take and rent it to music majors? All right. You're going to give it all up someday. And so don't put up your treasures where moth, rust, and robbers can get. Make it heavenly. And in verse... Uh, 16, the wage of the righteous is life, but the wicked, his income, it is punishment. That's all he can look forward to. So as money will take care of you physically, righteousness and wisdom takes care of you metaphysically. When I buried your dear daddy and your dear mama and old Stanford, <laughs> Alan and Doris, it's that Stuart's down here, their dear parents. You know, old Revo made some good money, but he didn't take none of it with him. But he died so happy. Your mama died so happy. Because they, money wasn't their purpose in life. They used it. They blessed people with it. And I've done a million funerals here. And it's always people that smile to the end of their life because they stored up righteousness. Who would you rather be? Ebenezer Scrooge or Bob Cratchit? Ebenezer has got a lot of money, but he's miserable. Bob Cratchit makes enough to live on. He's got a wife. He's got kids. He has a, a glowing house. He's got little tiny Tim, and they have love. And old Ebenezer had to have a break-in from heaven, the spirit of Christmas past. This is where you made your choice, Ebenezer. All right? 
you made your choice right here. Incidentally, it's good that they named him Ebenezer. That's where you raise a monument for where God intervenes in your life, is an Ebenezer. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. You walked away from that girl, and you walked away from your sister Fan, and you ended up a dried up old fellow. And so Christmas past says that's when you made your choice at that crossroads. And then Christmas present says, let's look at the house of Bob Cratchit. They're having a good time. Look at the house of your nephew. They're having a good time. Both of them happen to make fun of you. Remember Ebenezer or uh, Bob Cratchit says to his wife and family, a toast to Mr. Scrooge. I'll not be toasted, Scrooge. It's Christmas, dear. It's Christmas to Scrooge. All right. And he has to watch it. You have failed in life. And then here comes the Christmas future. And he says, oh, spirit, I fear you more than all the spirits. You're going to show me where I'm heading. And the spirit points and there's a grave and you roll aside the, the grass. It's been unkept. E Scrooge and lightning flashes. There's where you're going. And you see the great pinnacle of the book. He says, are these things that must be or things that might be? Do I have a chance to repent? And then he wakes up and he's there in the room. What day is it, sir? Why, it's Christmas day. I'm not dead. I've got a chance to live. And he repents and said he did Christmas well. It's kind of like to my big brother, George. What movie are we talking about here? It's a wonderful life. George Bailey was depressed because he thought he didn't make a lot of money. He took an angel, Clarence, a fat, gray-headed angel, to come to him and say, you see, George, you've had a wonderful life because it was people. To my big brother, George, to the richest man in town. Should all acquaint, okay. And that's the lesson. I think that wonderful life was patterned after uh, the Christmas carol because both of them had men that were worldly, negligent of the eternal, and both of them had to have heaven intercede to open their eyes. And so the key in verse 17, if you're on the path, let he that is on the path of life Heed instruction. Don't leave the wisdom of God. It's not a destination, it's a path. Always be having a time that you spend time with God and go deeper and deeper because as you become a different person every year, the Bible is different to you. I'm sure that when I read the Bible on my deathbed, I'm going to think I've never read it before. And in verse 17, you ignore reproof. What's the last word of 17? astray. You know what the word astray is in Greek? Planes, P-L-A-N-E-S. Planes. We get the word planet. Because when you look at the constellations, they're all in place forever, for all ages past. And then you notice some little bright lights that move. What are they called? Planets. Wanderers. That's the Greek word right here. Don't go astray. How many times have I seen people in our church that come up that do well 
And then you see them about 15, 20 years later, and their light has gone out. They have Hebrews. They have drifted away from the message delivered. Don't do that. I'm done. You want a great story? The last message of the Apostle Paul before he gets on the ship and goes to Rome, he's in a house. And in the house, he's preaching late at night. The house is packed out there at Troas, and he's preaching. He delayed his message till midnight so everybody could show up. And they're packing the house up, and in the second story, there's a kid up sitting in the windowsill. Y'all ever read this? His name is Eutychus, which means good luck. <laughs> okay. It's Eutychus, and he's a young boy. He's the next generation of Christians. We're coming now to the end of the first century. And so here's Paul preaching, and up on the second floor in the balcony, sitting as far away as he can get. Y'all remember being a teenager? You'd go to church and get in the balcony so you could go make out. All right, and you'd get as far as you could, right on the windowsill, all right? Inside, there's light. What's outside? Darkness, and Eutychus is sitting on the windowsill. Evil Kendall Lucas, I don't know where he is. His daddy was a preacher. One time, Kendall was cutting up in church, and his daddy saw him and said, well, Kendall, get up here. He sat him in the choir, and the choir had already sat down. <laughs> So Kendall got up and said, that's why he hates preachers to this day. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that we named him Kendall? Like Kindle a fire, you'll lie down in torment. Okay. And so he looks up and here's this kid, just like the youth group kid, sitting as far as he can. Y'all remember when your kids, you drove when they were little and they would sit beside you. And then they hit about 13, they had to walk four steps behind you because it was uncool. See. And so he notices Eutychus. Remember what Eutychus does on that windowsill? Falls asleep. That's what happens to teenagers in church. He fell asleep. Which way did he fall? Toward the light or to the dark? He fell to the dark, the dark side. And he broke his neck. <laughs> That'll learn him. Father, no, you probably want the sequel on this thing. He fell and broke his neck, and that's what happens to you when you try to get as far from the light as you can. He fell and broke his neck. And then Paul went down, and he had to have his second touch. And that's where now Paul falls on him and raises him up, Eutychus. Like one fellow said, you'd have cussed too if you'd have fell out of a window. All right. <laughs> you know who told me that? Danny Allen. <laughs> yeah. So beware of sleeping in the window. All right. Father in heaven, thank you for the beauty of your word. And thank you for its stern admonition. As we would expect a father to say. I thank you for the morning hours. Thank you for the evening hours. I love to sit and read and drink coffee and watch my dogs run around and listen to my wife do her reading and, and just to enjoy the quiet, the Eden 
are the delight of your presence. Indeed, wise men store up knowledge as rich men store up wealth, and it protects them in their life. And so we'll thank you through Christ our Lord. Amen.